Have you ever been afraid to ask a question? Most of us have. Always always afraid to look dumb. I had a professor tell me the only dumb questions you are are the ones you don't ask. I went to college at age 21. Uh, spent four years in a uh, social club called USAF. United States Air So by the time I got to college, I was four years older than most, most of the kids coming in. Now I have a son that's getting ready to go off to college and he thinks he's just going to be a breeze. I had to explain to him that when I went to college, I did not look at it that way. Never been in a study situation like that. For me, to be full time, we had to take 16 hours the very first semester. Well, I begged them to let me take more than 16 hours. Matter of fact, I took 21 credit hours my first semester. I discovered that was a mistake. <laughs> uh, you know, I took all the easy courses like systematic theology, Greek, history, Western Plus, I worked a 40 hour a week job. So, if I wasn't in school or studying or working, I occasionally found time to sleep. It wasn't a very smart idea on my part. My mind was constantly fried all the time. But God had blessed me with two men to be my roommates that were both grad students. And they were able to help me and encourage me and uh, just mentor me through that first semester. So next semester, 16 is all you need to take. <laughs> well, to find a release, if I wasn't studying one of my subjects, I was studying God's Word all the time. I need to do something to give me some type of uh, entertainment. I went to school in Florida, and though I could look out my window and see the surf, and I surf, I never had time to do that because I had too busy doing other things. So we played a game. We played a game called Lift Out. We would see who could take a verse out of Scripture, lift it out of context, and try and prove it. We did it only in our dorm rooms, so and no one ever thought we were really that weird. My roommate came up when I used to say, I can prove that God is a loaf of bread. I said, How's that? He said, The Bible says that the aroma of God is as a Freshly baked loaf. Yeah. Kind of lame, but I'll give it to you. Because what do you got? I said, I can prove to you from Scripture that women cannot be saved. He goes, let me hear that. I said, okay. Acts 15.1 says, except you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, ladies can't be saved. And he goes, that's pretty good. We did not believe in this stuff. It was just the way we just... Entertained ourselves in our dorm room in a privacy. No one else heard this. We shared a class called homiletics and how to preach. The president of school taught the class. He was 84 years old my freshman year, and he was suffering at that time from Alzheimer's. He would actually go to sleep in his own lecture. <laughs> and you look at it like wake him up, or we just sat there waiting, and he'd wake up, he'd just go off where he left. I'm like, how 
he walked into class and he opened up his book and called my roommate and said, Mr. Ross, today, <laughs> he said, today you're supposed to give a presentation, a sermon to the class. And it was not actually until the next week. And Ross went, excuse me, Doc, um, I don't think I'm scheduled to next week. If you're not prepared, you can go ahead and take E zero. <laughs> he stands up and he starts. Not prepared, made up a sermon like this. Guess what text he used? Acts 15 1. Except you're circumcised after the manner of those, you cannot be saved. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I can't believe he just did this. <laughs> when it was all over, Dr. Cameron said, Mr. Lochte, your homiletics, your ability to preach was excellent. Your hermeneutics stinks. Your ability to interpret scripture. He got an A on that message. How? I don't understand. It wasn't a hermeneutics class. It was a homiletics class on how to preach. After class, we showed Dr. Cameron that if you look at your calendar, he was not scheduled until next week. He goes, you mean you did that off the hip? Yeah, he did. He goes, well, I'm going to change it to an A+. Plus. We got an A+. Plus out of it. <laughs> he goes, where did you hear such things out of context? And my wonderful roommate said, Michael told me that. <laughs> Thanks, boss. I really appreciate that. So I had spent the next 20 minutes in Dr. Cameron's office. He explained to me how wrong I was. I said, I understand. He was taken out of contact. He was playing about the game we were playing. And then he proceeded to tell me how stupid it was to play that game. <laughs> In our series this week, or this month, we are asking, do you have questions? Someone has asked, can we apply all the promises in the Bible? I would give you one guideline. Read it in context. Because you can take any verse out of context, not knowing the historical background, though you mean well, really misinterpret that. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. This came from our game that we played in our dorm room. Uh, if it's in the Bible, it's true, right? If you're in Kids own a worship day when you can say, yes. If it's in the Bible, it's true, right? Yes. Can God tell a lie? No. Of course not. Do you realize that in Hebrew, there are no punctuation? There's no commas or periods. So when you look at a verse in the Old Testament, the commas and periods, the punctuation is placed for utter understanding. So if you take out those commas and periods, you can make a verse say just about anything you want. I see someone smile. You know what I'm going to go with. <laughs> Who is the most wisest man who ever lived? Solomon, right? Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, now I'm going to change for the punctuation mark, but I'm going to say it word for word. Solomon said, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is as snares. Whoever pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be entrapped by her. 
Thus says the preacher. All I did was move, take out a comma. It's not that I find woman or death. The woman. It's I find more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is as snared. But you see how easy it is to take something out of context. If you want to take and apply a, a promise in the Bible, and there's over 400 promises in the Bible, not all of them can apply to us. So today we're going to look at how can we be sure that a, a promise I read in the Bible is for me. So, the first thing I want you to understand is there are two types of promises. First of all, there's a general promise. A general promise is given by the Holy Spirit to every believer in every age. When the author penned the promise, he put set no limitations on a time period or a recipient. Now, this is a promise that every one of us can claim. You can check it in context. We find it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that you and I can claim. This promise is based on the forgiveness, forgiving nature of God and is available to every believer everywhere. Pretty good, right? Here's another one. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. This promise is made to all believers who refuse to worry and bring the request to God. Now you can't claim that God's going to give me peace if you constantly worry. If you're worried about it, pray. But if you pray, don't worry. Because if you want that peace that passes all understanding, you can't even explain. Give up the worry and trust God. One more. John chapter 4, verse 13 through 14. He's talking about the woman on the well. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, that water I give will be to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Note the word, whoever. This is a promise, though it was spoken in context, to the woman, Jesus said, whoever will drink it. He's talking about salvation. These are promises that every believer can cling to. There are so many more that applies to everyone who is a child of God. Those promises read in context are for you, and for you, and for you, and for me. Everyone. There are some that are specific. This is a promise that one is made to a specific individual on a specific occasion. The context of the promise will usually make it clear who is this recipient now I've got some examples I'm going to go over. In 1 Kings chapter 9, 
I will establish the royal throne over Israel forever. I have heard Jewish believers proclaim this verse as saying that we will always reign with God. I want to tell them to go back and read this in context. Because the preceding and following verses make it all clear that God is speaking only to King Solomon. So we can take a verse, it sounds good, it's what we want to hear, but out of context it doesn't apply to us. Have any parents ever, ever had a child that's gone astray? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? I've heard many parents claim this verse. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now this was a prophecy or a promise that was directed to Mary, and it was fulfilled in her lifetime. But I've heard people claim it. Another one. We recently had a presidential election. One of the candidates on their platform stated that in, in, in what she what he or she said <laughs> that God will heal our land. And I was like, okay, that's taking up second fourteen. Now, now, this is a specific promise that I, many Christians claim as a promise that if God's people, which are called by His name, will humble themselves, pray, seek His face, and turn from the wicked way, then God will hear our land. And I've heard well-meaning Christians use this verse, preach on this verse, teach this verse, that this, we claim this promise that God's going to heal America. In context, that's not what it says. This is a message given to Solomon. He had just built the temple of God. God stated, if I withhold the rain from the sky, if I send the locusts and devour all your crops. If my people will then humble themselves, if they will pray, if my people will turn from the wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. He was talking about this temple, Solomon's temple that had just been built and was dedicated. He was, this is a promise of Specific promise given only to Solomon. They built this house of God where people could come and worship and offer sacrifices. He said, Now, here's the condition. If my people will do this and they come into my house, the sanctuary, the temple, then I'm going to receive their sacrifice. Then I'm going to heal their land. It's not applied to every nation, especially America. Because that verse is a, a, a state of promise, but it's only to Solomon. We often use it to proclaim a reason why God should, do, should heal America. We try to bid God to do our will. Now God, your word says this, and you 
have to do this. Read it in context. If you play the game like I did, and you lift it out of context, then you might be well-leaning, you could be well-wrong. There are specific promises, made to, not made to all believers, generally, but the Holy Spirit can still use a specific promise to guide and encourage us. You can still find encouragement from it, even though it's not totally applicable to you. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. My unfailing love, you will not be shaken. My nor my covenant of peace be removed. This is written to Israel in mind. But the Holy Spirit has used these words to comfort many Christians today. The Apostle Paul quoted this. So this promise was not directed to him. He found encouragement in that. God's word can encourage you. But don't claim it as this is the truth that God has given to me. Most of you have heard that I worked for one of those bad examples of evangelism. I worked to him after going to Bible college. I was still a relatively young Christian. When I, matter of fact, I was even saved under his ministry. Called to preach under his ministry. So the opportunity came to work for him. I thought this was a godsend. And six months he destroyed my faith. I saw so much wrongdoing and heard so much manipulation of Scripture. I was like, this is what you Christians are about. I want nothing to do with you. I thank God that God gave me a, a church that loved me and encouraged me and helped me walk through that process and helped me restore my faith in God. This man would use many promises out of context and use it to manipulate people to do what he wanted. One of the promises he claimed was Luke chapter 6, verse 38. It says, if you give, it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, so men give unto you. So then his message would be, then proves you need to give your money to me. At this point, I was going to wait a minute, let me look this up. So I looked up Luke 38. It's not referring that I need to give this man so I need to give back to God. And if I give it to God out of obedience, out of a joyful heart, then that promise can apply to me. But if you stand up and tell me that I need to give because give to you because this is what Scripture says, you're taking that out of context. How many have heard Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So you've heard that? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. How do you have it on your wall? Or a plaque? I was in a house this week and looked up on the wall and there it was. Let me tell you something about Jeremiah chapter 29. If you just take that one verse, it sounds pretty good, right? Let me give you a bit of a historical background. At this time, Israel had been taken captive back into Babylon. While they were in Babylon, they were subjected to some harsh treatment. 
And they were like, what is going on? I thought God loved me. Forgetting the fact that they turned their backs on God, they were disobedient to God, and God had brought them into judgment by sending the Babylonians. You go back and read Habakkuk. Habakkuk's mind is blown away when God tells him that I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge my people for their disobedience. Habakkuk responds, What? The evil Babylonians? You're going to use them to judge us? And he gets past his pride and goes, Fine. Then you do it to the full extent that we might learn. In Jeremiah chapter 28, the people had been listening to a false prophet. His name was Hedonite. He told them that God said that you're only going to be in captivity for two years. And that God knows that He has plans for you. And He declares that He will prosper you and not harm you. These people had been in captivity. This is something they wanted to hear, that we have an escape. We're going to get out of this, and we're going to go back to our homeland. This is exactly what they wanted to hear, and they were just claiming this, thinking, it's all done. Jeremiah writes, that wicked man, Hananiah, he will die within this year because of what he's declared to you. You have listened to his lies. At the end of chapter 28, we realize in less than 10 months, God took Hananiah's life. Then Jeremiah writes to the people in Babylon. And he wants to encourage them. They thought, you know, God's got good plans for me to prosper me, not to harm me. Plans to give me hope in the future. He goes, yeah, God has plans, but it's going to take 70 years. That's not what they wanted to hear. Well, that was not good news for them. Taken out of context, promises can be used to support what you want to hear. In hermeneutics, you have many principles to, go, to govern you, how you interpret Scripture. One of, look at the historical background. Look at the text, whether it's the Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. Look at the context. Read what's before, what's after it. It'll help you understand who this verse, this promise is for. You want to apply God's promises. Not all of them are for us. Have you ever heard someone ask or pray that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he'll be in the midst? I've heard this. I've been in groups... We're praying together, and someone would claim this. I want to stop them and remind them, you need to go back and read Matthew chapter 18. Because in context, Jesus is instructing the church to do something that's very neglected today. That's church discipline. He says, if you have a brother that has wronged you, go to them, that you might restore him. But if he refuses to you, you are to take two or three witnesses. Now, this comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, that every truth is established by two or three witnesses, one counting yourself. So you need to take two or three other people with you. 
that you might explain to the brother his error or daughter that they might be restored. And if he still refuses you, two or three witnesses, God has says, Jesus said, I'm there with him. And he still refuses it, take it now to the church. And if he still refuses to hear what the church has to say, now put him out. That doesn't mean that we are to forget about them. The idea of putting them out, let them understand that what they've done was so severe that the church says, until you repent, until you turn back to God, you can no longer be in fellowship with us because you're obviously out of fellowship with God. You've been to a church that practiced church discipline? I've been in one. And it was very difficult for them for people to receive that when church discipline was actually instituted. So when you hear someone said, where two or three are gathered, then I'm in the midst. I have a problem with that. Because what you're telling me is it takes to have two to three Christians together before Jesus is there. I'm sorry. Jesus lives inside me and inside you. So if you're there, he's already there. You don't need to wait till you have two to three before God shows up. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, but I will always be with you. There's a promise you need to cling to. When you take a promise of God, some of them are directed for everyone. Some of them are not. Ask the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sent to guide us into all truth. We couldn't have the Holy Spirit unless Jesus died. The disciples were like, you're going to die? Why? And Johnny tells, I'm going that I might send the comforter to you who will be your guide into all truth. If you want to know if it's true, will you hear somebody says it? Paul encouraged the believers to go back and search the scriptures. See if what I'm saying is true. And if you find it that I am wrong, you need to tell me. Rebuke me, Paul states. Now, I don't know if I'd ever be bold enough to rebuke the Apostle Paul, but (laughs) Paul encouraged the believers not to just take what someone says, but to search out the Scriptures to see if it is true. If it sounds too good, if it sounds, you know, I want to know that God's going to give me a million dollars, it's probably not true because you can't find Scripture to back that up. (laughs) True? There are promises that are meant for you and me, and there are promises that are not. So be careful when we claim every promise for ourselves. We all have heard bad examples, like the man I worked for, who took promises way out of context and tried to manipulate people to do his will. Some of these promises are conditional. How do we know if they're conditional? Look for the word if in context. If it says if, there's probably a condition applied to it. Like in Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by thy name. There's a condition that if we would obey God, if we do what he would say, he promises a blessing or a guidance to us. So God's promises are Sometimes they're conditional. Look for the word if. 
If you want to know if it applies to you, look for whoever or whosoever if you've got the King James Bible. God gives us a promise for a reason. Promises are made to us to help us better to submit to his will. Not what you wanted to hear, right? You wanted to hear that God wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. One of the evangelists, evangelists that I worked with in Houston has built a ministry that's worldwide, worldwide by that statement. That God wants you healthy. That God wants you wealthy. That God wants to bless you. God gives us a promise to help us submit to his will and to trust him. Just because we have a promise doesn't make it God bend to our will. Now, the Israelites in bondage in Babylon, boy, they heard this false prophet Hananiah say, God wants to prosper you. They were saying, God, Hananiah told us, you want to prosper us. You have a, a plan not to harm us, but to give us hope. So therefore, get rid of these Babylonians. Get us out of here. That is trying to bend God to do what you want him to do. It doesn't work that way. One more thing we should do with following Bible promises. If you want to apply it, do not assume to know precisely when, where, or how God promises to be fulfilled in your life. When parents cry out that, oh, a sword is piercing my soul, that doesn't apply to you. That applied only to Mary. Do not assume that you know how God's going to act. He's God, and we are not. His plans might be higher, or they not be, they are higher than us. His ways are better than our ways, and his promises are true. Those that we can apply, cling to it. And those that you are skeptical about, search the scripture. Does it apply to you? Maybe, if nothing else, it can just give you comfort that God loves you. That God wants you to reign with him forever and ever. You never have to pray, if you are a believer, that God would be with you. We've heard people say that in prayers. Pray that God is with me. Sorry, he's not going to leave you guys. Why do you pray that? You're wasting your time with God. Ask God to use the Holy Spirit to open up his word to you that you might know him better. And in knowing him better, that you might submit to him all the time and do his will and not my will. Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, He was not looking forward to dying for you and for me. That cross did not excite him. In the garden, he said, God, if there's any other way that salvation can come to man, let it happen. But not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will. When Jesus prayed in the garden, he wasn't excited about what God was going to allow to happen to him. But then he submitted to him. He said, no, that's not what I want. 
It's what you want. You have a plan to accomplish salvation for all. And if I could be part of that plan, use me. God has a plan for us. And it may or may not be that you'll prosper and be wealthy. Maybe God's plan is for you not to have perfect health. Maybe God's plan for you is not that you be considered the most wisest person that's ever lived. But God's plan for you and I is that he might show his love through you and me that others might see the glory of God in us and look to him. We as a church went through, what on earth am I here for? In our small group, we, we focused a lot on this, that though we might not know everything God has in us, there are some things we can cling to. We have a ministry here within the church, and we have a mission outside this church to tell others about the good news about Jesus. When you are able to do that, and you get to be part of the process of someone coming into the kingdom, you receive a joy inside, a joy unspeakable. According to Paul in Philippians chapter 4, you can't even speak it. It is so exciting to be part of that process. There are promises that God gives to us that excite us. There are promises that God gives us that do not apply to us. And there are promises that God gives us that do make us open up our eyes and look at ourselves. Am I submitting to God's will? Am I trying to bend him to do what I want? If so, God forgive me. I'm going to leave you with, with one promise. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. In context, John is repeating the words that he received from his vision of heaven. And he's applying this to the seven churches in Asia Minor. This is a promise to all believers, though, in Revelation 3.20. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone... So this is applying to every believer. If anyone opens their door to me and receives me, if you ask Jesus to be the king of your life, he says, I'm going to come in. I'm going to sup with you. He's going to have fellowship with you and me. He'll never leave us. He'll always be with us. He says, I stand at that door and knock. If a man opens his door to me and receives me, I will come into him and sup with him, and there I'll be with him forever. That's a promise you can bank on. Jesus wants to be forever with you. And in doing so, he will give you that Holy Spirit to help you, to guide you, to make you more like him. That is a promise that we need to bank on. Let's pray. My Father, I thank you for all these promises we can find in Scripture. But I also thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us, who helps us, and who enables us to follow you. Father, I pray for all my friends here today. First of all, these that already know Jesus as their Savior. That, Father, that we would cling to these promises that do apply to us. That you would truly give us a peace that passes understanding if 
we'll choose not to worry and to trust you. If there's some that do not know, Father, I pray that your invitation to join you, to have fellowship with you, that they would receive that and open their door of their heart to you. And Father, I ask that you would help us to be on ministry here within the church, serving one another, and to be on mission of telling others that they too can experience the love of God that passes all understanding. Father, I thank you for loving us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.